You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. So huge thank you to Thomas Harding for joining me on the podcast today. Thomas has been a lawyer since 1990. He practices primarily in the areas of civil personal injury and family law. And uh, he has lectured uh, to numerous lawyers, including the largest uh, association of trial lawyers in the uh, in the world or in North America, um, the uh, about personal injury. And he's joining us to talk about this news that broke recently about ICBC using something called a meat chart. Um, so, Thomas, welcome. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Good to talk to you, Kyla. Now, what what is a meat chart? I have no idea what it is, but you know. Sure. So, meat chart they often refer to uh, dealing with workers' compensation, for example, that um, if you lose a hand, you get so many dollars. If you lose a finger, you get fewer. If you lose a whole arm, you get more. But it, it has no relationship to the actual injury that's caused to the person. It's just which part of them was damaged or removed. Okay, so basically it, it, it assesses a value to each of your body parts based on what piece of meat it is. Correct, and, and the ICBC one is different because they're not actually assessing any particular physical injury. Uh, what we understand is they're assessing all injuries based upon how long it takes for a person to return to work of any kind. Okay, and does that, like when you say work of any kind, does that include things that are, like people who are unemployed, who maybe contribute in their households, or is it just oh, like income earning? Oh, work? no. Oh, no, 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 no. So the, the meat chart that ICBC is, is bringing forward will selectively discriminate against children, students, stay-at-home parents. They're not all moms. Um, the elderly, the unemployed uh, people who are already disabled. I mean, I had a client who was a uh, an incomplete uh, quadriplegic. He had some use of his arms, and he was hit by a car and dragged into traffic. Oh ICBC would say he gets zero because you know he's never going to work, never had or well hadn't worked before the crash. That seems wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, it does. So, so do you think then that this sort of meat chart approach is a useful way to deal with injury claims? No, not at all. The, 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 the reason why ICBC wants to do this is that it's contrary to what happens in a courtroom. And, you know, we have in, in British Columbia, we were until last year the only remaining province that had proper tort law. And we're also the only province that had any kind of routine civil jury trials. Um, most other provinces don't have any. Um, most jurisdictions other than the states don't have any. BC has always had some, maybe one or two percent of, of uh, civil trials would be jury trials. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a given injury, if a judge were to award $100,000, and I just picked that number because it's simple, but $100,000 all told, and the ICBC new policy says, we'll give you 20, 
that's not fair unless they think that, you know, every judge is crazy and, you know, gives away money for nothing. Same with juries. I mean, uh, my experience with juries is that um, they're actually smarter than judges. Um, and I say that because there are eight of them and they have to talk amongst themselves, whereas a judge talks to him or herself. Um, and, you know, if, if the whole of society is saying this is how we should do something, and then one small organization with its own money in place says, we want to give you a whole lot less, that's not the right way. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned um, beforehand that there's various levels um, of injury. Yeah. Now, they haven't published this, but as it turns out, not everybody who works for ICBC uh, is entirely reliable to keep secrets. So what we understand <laughs> is that they have five levels. Um, level one is you return to work in, within 30 days, and the maximum for pain and suffering will be $20,000, no matter what. Um, and, and so, you know, if you're a single parent and you return to work in a month because you're living paycheck to paycheck and ICBCs refuse to pay you any benefits at all, under your own Part 7 insurance. So you go back to work at Safeway, uh, you know, as a cashier in pain all the time because you have to feed your kids. ICBC will say, well, then you're all better and your maximum is 10K. Um, for level two, same sort of analysis, but that's anything less than 90 days, maximum is 30,000. Level three is return to work within six months. Um, and maximum pay is 40000 Level four is what they now call serious injury. And so it's an injury that lasts more than six months uh, with no end cap on it, and that's the maximum is 75000 And then for what they call catastrophic, um, there's no set number, um, and they call that individualized. Um, but, you know, catastrophic as we use it mostly in personal injury law from, from judges, what that means is um, a person who is so badly damaged that they will never really return to any normal function. So, you know, a ventilator-dependent quadriplegic is a catastrophic injury. A person with um, at least one limb amputated is a catastrophic injury. Right, and then at that point, there's no, there's really no amount of money that can make them whole again. Well, in, indeed, Kyla, but but remember that the injury it shouldn't be thought of as the physical trauma. The injury is the effect, and you know if if a person were, for example, to be subjected to watching their entire village murdered, um, you know, the, all of the men put inside a church or mosque and burned to death, and all the women raped to death, as, as happened in the civil war in Yugoslavia, but they themselves were not touched, ICBC would say, well, they weren't injured. That's ridiculous. So then... So how does this affect then, because there are claims that ICBC has paid out historically for people who are not physically injured in any way, but who witnessed a crash and are, are negatively impacted by what they witnessed, whether they watched somebody die in a car accident or, or were traumatized by the, the observations they made of, of injuries to individuals in a crash. How does this play into that type of litigation? 
Well, um, under their meat chart, those people would collect nothing. Um, one of the, the things that ICBC's new meat chart says, apparently, is that anyone who's diagnosed to have depression, and, and I don't know why they picked depression. I, I infer any major psychiatric disorder, but for depression, for sure, if they're diagnosed a year or more post-crash, ICBC will say then that was not caused by the crash and that person gets zero. Um, and, you know, anyone who's ever actually gone through a depression or known anyone who's gone through depression knows that most of them aren't diagnosed within a year because for a long time people deny it. They think they're going to get better. They just need to pull up their socks or, you know, gird their loins or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's very, very long time before they get a proper diagnosis. Um, that argument has been made for, well, the 30 years I've practiced law, that if it doesn't get diagnosed within six months, one year, two years of the injury, it's not the injury. And judges have routinely rejected that. So, so CBC wants to, um, they want to cheat by saying um, the law that we've known it forever, uh, they just won't follow anymore. And why, like, when did this, did this all come to, to a head? When did this meat chart, um, because the, the news stories that I've read about it, it seemed to be all of a sudden previous offers were being revoked and replaced with offers that were based on this meat chart. When did this start happening? My understanding is that there was um, a province-wide um, uh, telephone conference with, I don't know if it was every ICBC defense lawyer, but the bulk of them, either last Thursday or Friday, and the law was laid down by somebody at HQ. Who are the people at HQ that make these decisions? Are they lawyers? Are they former judges? Uh, No. um, ICBC has a tiny staff of in-house lawyers most of whom don't do litigation of any kind. They're, they're sort of the corporate lawyer side. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of their directors have any legal training, at least not according to their bios on their website. Um, most decisions are being made by people whose background is in um, finance management. So it's your banker making a decision about your medical care. I, I mean, I find it ironic that their directors are people whose background is in financial management and ICBC is in such a sad state of financial mismanagement at this point in time. Yeah, well, um, their directors, if you run down the list on the, uh, their website, um, the chair, uh, her claim to fame is that she's the owner of an LGBTQ, etc. Uh, uh, television network. And nothing wrong with that, but it's not the right training. Um, they have several people from Transit and TransLink. I've, I've no idea why. Um, and then they have mostly um, um, finance people and one person from Intact Insurance. Um, Intact, not one of the more, um, how shall I say, um, customer-oriented insurance companies. Interesting. So, and this all, all of this information is publicly available. 
their bios are on their website. Just go to their page and look at directors. I'm surprised that nobody has sort of pointed this out in the discussion about the um, sort of the big media attention that's been paid about the financial mismanagement of ICBC, that these people are people who should be capable of, of managing the finances of the corporation. Yeah, um, you have to understand that uh, part of this battle has been characterized by the Attorney General as a battle between greedy plaintiff lawyers and the um, um, wonderful taxpayers and ratepayers of British Columbia, which is uh, both insulting and um, dangerous for people's civil liberties. Um, if, if the fight were characterized as between innocent, injured victims and a greedy, fraudulent insurance company, the message would be quite different. And why do you, you know, think the narrative's been framed the way it has been? Well, the people who own the, um, you know, the barrels of ink, they set the message. So the attorney general can say anything he wants and it gets published everywhere for free. Um, he has his bully pulpit. He's now taken to Twittering very much like Mr. Trump. Um, he doesn't answer questions. He makes up stuff and when he's challenged for facts, he ducks the question. Um, so, you know, every time anyone who knows anything counters that, the people who know things tend to be personal injury lawyers because that's where we practice. I mean, Kyla, you are a perfect example. <laughs> if someone wants to know about impaired driving law in Canada or certainly within British Columbia, they're going to ask you because you're the expert. And and if Crown said, well, you know, she, she's just a, a defense lawyer, she, she's clearly biased, well, okay. You know, uh, cancer doctors see a lot of people with cancer. Personal injury plaintiff lawyers see a lot of people who are hurt. And we develop a lot of expertise on that. The, so the, with the expertise that you have on this um, and sort of the knowledge that you have about uh, ICBC's background, do you think that these changes will solve the problem of the financial crisis at ICBC? Well, I think eventually they will because um, ICBC is now uh, more than ever in the business of collecting premiums and not paying claims. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they just raised the premium by six and a half percent and they're reducing their payout. Um, they want to reduce it by a billion dollars this year. So they're reducing their payment vastly in excess of uh, you know, what anything that's rational. So if they carry that on, um, if they can keep increasing their premium and keep reducing what they pay, how can they ever um, not make money? I mean, if, if the jar of peanut butter gets smaller every year and the price gets higher, the peanut butter makers are going to make a lot of money eventually. Do you have any confidence, though, that like maybe this is a stopgap solution and that once sort of balance is restored to the coffers at ICBC, that they'll go back to uh, assessing claims in a way that's sort of reasonable and non-discriminatory and, and not predetermined? Uh, no, for two reasons. One, every province in Canada which has gone the root of taking away the rights of people to sue has never restored them. And two, 
ICBC was uh, invented by the NDP government as a not-for-profit insurance company. Insurance companies usually make a lot of money, um, and ICBC was invented by Dave Barrett so that all of that profit could be plowed back into helping injured victims. Now it's changed into a profit center. Right. So why would a government ever give that away? I, I mean, you're asking, would the government ever get rid of income tax or lotteries or control of liquor? No. The, um, a lot of the criticism about ICBC has been that part of the reason for the financial mismanagement has been the previous government raiding ICBC's profits every year and, you know, because it was ultimately treated like a profit corporation used to fund other things in the province and, and balance the balance the provincial budget. Um, do you think that because the uh, NDP had not had that intention that if they remain in power, um, that type of practice will discontinue? Uh, no. no. Um, first of all, I actually uh, knew Dave Barrett. I was only a teenager, but I spent enough time with him personally to know that he was an entirely honorable and moral man. Um, that philosophy of the old NDP does not exist. Um, the, the NDP are now, in my view, indistinguishable uh, from the Socrates of the Bill Bennett era. So they're never going to return to that. Um, and, you know, again, why would they? What, what would cause them to have a, a convulsion of morality and go back to the way that things should be? Well, I mean, I'll put a tough question to you, Thomas, because I know you can handle it. Um, uh, is it, I mean, a lot of the criticism that's been flung has been, you know, at the greedy ICBC lawyers. So why would the the personal injury plaintiff bar um, be doing this out of a convulsion of morality and not because you guys want to make a bunch of money defending personal or, or prosecuting personal injury claims? Well, I don't speak for all personal injury lawyers. Uh, I have no doubt that there are greedy personal injury lawyers out there. Um, but quite frankly, I would make as much or more money just doing divorce law uh, as doing personal injury law. So I don't care financially. But the reality is that people who are injured, whether they're hit by a car or they fall down badly designed stairs in an apartment building, or they slip on uh, a wet floor at a grocery store, um, those people are injured and they're entitled to compensation. The people who hurt them are not entitled in our system of law of saying shit happens and walking away. Um, and so um, most of the personal injury lawyers that I know, um, certainly the ones that are friends of mine, you know, I can number them in a couple of hundred, um, care about the rights of people. Um, again, it's the same argument that people make about lawyers all the time. Are you not just making money? Okay, sure. And every country that does not have a system of an independent bar, an independent bar meaning lawyers will stand up to governments, lawyers will stand up to powerful financial interests like insurance companies and banks and large employers. Every country that lacks that um, 
independent bar is a dictatorship. No, there are no greedy plaintiff lawyers in China. There are no greedy plaintiff lawyers in North Korea. So what do they have in common? They have no freedom. And, you know, it, it is, to me, bizarre that the government um, uh, at the same time says we have to stop this personal injury problem, but only for cars because we're the one that's the insurance company. But no one says, the government's never said, if you fall down at a grocery store, you shouldn't be allowed to sue the store. Or if you eat um, some peanut butter that has arsenic in it, you shouldn't be allowed to sue the manufacturer. They don't care because it's not their money. Right. It's not their money. And also drivers are generally a, an easy target for bad laws. They're people well, that, you, that you can cash in on that, um, you know, you know that they have some source of revenue because they can afford to buy a car and insure it and put gas in it and drive it around. Um, well, no, I don't think that's true. I, I think that's wrongheaded of you. Um, first of all, um, having a car is a necessity in our society, mostly to, in order to work. Um, second, um, of course, British Columbia has a monopoly government-owned insurance company. Um, so they make it a law that you have to buy insurance. In places that don't have mandatory insurance, like every state in the U.S., um, they have people with policies as low as $15,000 for liability. Um, and those people just walk away. You know, they're, they're $15,000 at risk. They don't care if you're, you know, catastrophically injured. Um, so I don't think that saying drivers are an easy target because they must have money because they can afford a car. No. Most people in this province are earning, you know, $60,000 a year or less. Um, you know, a school teacher, a grocery store clerk, um, the guy who helps you at the local um uh, home product store, I, I won't mention brand names, um, those people, if, if they hit someone, if, if they hit another grocery store clerk who couldn't work for the rest of her life or his life, that's a million-dollar claim. Do, do you think the guy who works at Safeway has a million dollars just because he owns a 10-year-old car? I don't. No, of course not. Okay. But I'm, I'm so not. I'm not saying drivers them. are um, uh, do have this kind of money, but they're perceived as having it. Well, I I don't know who would perceive that, but um, it seems like a wrong-headed thing. And and you know nowadays, at least in the Lower Mainland, people are often um, asset rich because their house went up fourfold in the last few years. So you know, um, if there were no mandatory insurance and somebody had a $15,000 policy, but a million-dollar house, I'm going to take their house. Mm -hmm. And that makes that person homeless because they didn't have insurance. And, you know, that is the other side of insurance. It's to protect the person who buys the insurance. So overall, then, do you agree with having, like, a mandatory government-run insurance scheme just not run the way it is currently being run? I, I do, actually. I, I think that ICBC, when it was first formed, was a great idea. And I think that ICBC, as it was operated for the first um, 40 years, from 1972 to 2012, roughly, 
did pretty well. I mean, you know, I, I would rail against them and, you know, they're, they're the other side, but compared to other insurance companies in, in the States primarily, um, you know, State Farm, Allstate, those come intact, those companies. One of the advantages of dealing with ICBC as a plaintiff lawyer was since it was a government entity, it was liable to the Freedom of Information Act. It was liable to questions being raised in the legislature. It was liable to publish its financial statements. So you could see how much they were paying their defense doctors, for example. You can't get any of that from a private insurance company. Um, the difference, though, is that the private insurance companies are terribly vulnerable and afraid of bad faith lawsuits. And ICBC doesn't seem to care. I'm glad that you mentioned bad faith lawsuits because I, I wanted to ask, do you think that this meat chart and the action of pulling all the office or offers that had been previously made and replacing them with lower ones, the way that this is all rolled out, um, do you think that this is bad faith negotiation? Yeah, but let's, let's talk about the term. Bad faith is a, is a term of art used in insurance. And it really means when your own insurance company defrauds you. So uh, as an example, if, if I have fire insurance on my house and it burns down and I phone the insurance company and say, my house burned down, I, I would like a new house, please, because that's in my policy. And they say, yeah, you need to send us pictures of you naked first. <laughs> um, that, that's adding a term to the contract and that's bad faith. Um, if you're talking about negotiations, there's a general concept, it's not a legal concept, of, of negotiating in good faith. And clearly, withdrawing offers is, is, is not negotiating in good faith. But it's not a legal duty of good faith to the person on the other side of the negotiation. The only legal duty of good faith is between a person and their own insurance company. So that's the so-called Part 7, the, the medical benefits, the rehab benefits, the income loss benefits that you own, if you're not, so, so if you're in a car crash, um, uh, you know, if I hit you, you sue me and my insurance company, which happens to be ICBC, steps in to pay the amount that I would be liable uh, to pay you. At the same time, you have your own insurance benefits for all your medical expenses and your income loss and stuff. And it's a coincidence that's also with ICBC. But their duty to you under that policy, we call it a first party policy, um, that is a duty of utmost good faith where they have to prefer your interest to their own. So when in doubt, the customer always wins. Because ICBC is now both your insurance company and my insurance company, they routinely play off that first-party insurance. They refuse to pay your medical benefits, your rehab benefits, your wage loss benefits to try to starve you into a small settlement on the lawsuit against the driver who hit you. Whereas every other insurance company in the world that I'm aware of um, cannot do that and they're forbidden to have the same staff working on both sides of the file. So back to my example, if my house burned down, 
because you came over and flicked a cigarette behind the sofa. So I phoned my insurance company, call it Laurentian, and they say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Miss Leah's our insured as well, so we're not going to pay you. We're not going to buy you a new house. We'll give you, I don't know, 100 grand uh, because she's our customer as well. Laurentian Insurance would not have the same adjusters working for you and for me. Um, it is an ethical problem for them. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada, which sets ethical standards for insurance companies in this country, forbids it. ICBC is not a member of the Insurance Bureau, and that's why. And they can get away so, with not being a member because they are government-run. Well, no. It's the, I, the Insurance Bureau is um, a voluntary organization like trial lawyers. So, you know, trial lawyers has an ethical canon, but it's not the law society you don't have to join. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, ICBC does this in nearly 100% of the cases. They have the same adjuster representing the defendant and the plaintiff. And, and of course, they sell out the plaintiff to save themselves money. Right. So is there, if you're doing that, um, refusing to pay small claims because you're trying to save yourself a few hundred bucks here or there. Is there something like some type of consequence that could befall them legally? Yes. Yeah. That's where the bad faith lawsuit comes in. So in the example, um, you, 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 you get hurt and you need physiotherapy because your doctor said that might help. And you go to the physiotherapist for half a dozen treatments and you send the bill to ICBC and they're under their insurance, um, uh, policy, physio is covered, and you send your receipts and they just say, no, we're not going to pay, um, you know, go soak your head. Um, so you go to one lawyer and that lawyer might say, well, you know, it, it's $600. I, I can't sue for $600. It's not economic. Um, the better action is to say, oh, no, no, this is not failure to pay. This is bad faith and bad faith always, if you get judgment, it always results in punitive damages. Um, punitive damages, of course, are measured not by how much you lost. It's not the $600. It's measured by the outrageousness of the conduct and how much money the bad guy has. Right. And, and here I will use a real example. I, there's a dry cleaner that's just across the street from my office, and it's run by literally a mom and pop. And if, if they just decided they were not going to do dry cleaning for um, gay people and they were sued, I'm guessing $10,000 would put them out of business. What if Jimmy Patterson said none of his stores would sue gay people and there was judgment against his company for $10,000? That would not correct his behavior. No. So the punitive damages, the law says it has to sting. It has to hurt the bad guy. And ICBC is a really big corporation. And so to sting them, the number is big. And it's, as I say, it's measured by how much money they have. And it's also measured by, as I said, outrageousness of the conduct. And one of the marks of that is how many times have they done this before? And if their motive was for profit, they get punished even more. Um, I know that because I'm one of the guys who's taken a punitive damage award against ICBC for outrageous conduct. 
Um, and the last one was $350,000 over a trivial uh, claim, ultimately. Is there a lot of punitive damages awarded by the courts against ICBC, or is it rare to see that? It's quite rare. Um, it used to be that you, it wasn't the law that you couldn't get them, but you just didn't. And and so you compare the facts, you know, a case against Wawanisa Insurance, and they'd be smashed with punitive damages, and the same facts against ICBC, and the judge would tisk tisk, but not award anything. Um, that seems to have gone away. Um, and, um, you know, what I expect is that punitive damage awards against ICBC will ramp up. And, and I have this little um, sort of comment I make to judges where ICBC is doing the same thing. I point out that last time when the court chided them, uh, it chid them to the point of, say, $350,000. And this didn't work. So you'll have to speak a little louder, my lady. Um, and that, that seems to work for me. Mm-hmm. So how do you see all of this meat chart nonsense ending up for ICBC with your experience as somebody who's got punitive damages against them before? Uh, badly. For them, it'll go badly. And um, some of the things that are going to happen is there's going to be a huge increase in the number of lawsuits that are actually not only filed, but that proceed to trial. And, and we know because the court keeps statistics, um, the chief justice keeps the statistics, I guess, um, something in excess of 98.5% of all motor vehicle personal injury cases that get filed in BC settle without a trial. Um, that is going to change dramatically because... You know, in, in in the old days, and um, I, I can't give you averages because I don't, I haven't done every single personal injury case in the history of the province. But <laughs> let's let's try this. If you got hit by a car and you came to see me the next day, and through some magic process, I could tell you you're entitled to exactly a hundred thousand um, uh, dollars. Take you know, and I somehow knew how this would affect you for the rest of your life. And the process would take five years, and ICBC would follow you around with video cameras and interview your neighbors and accuse you of all kinds of um, dishonest conduct and and burrow through every record they could find of you and creep you on Facebook and so on. And at the end of the day, if I got you the hundred thousand dollars, you would get about fifty-five or sixty, maybe seventy on a good day, because I'd take my fees and so on. And then you went to the adjuster an hour later, and he said, yeah, you're entitled to $100,000. So I'll give you 50 today to walk away. Which would you take? 50 today to walk away. The dollar today is of, worth more than the dollar in five years. Of course you would, because you're not crazy. <laughs> on, the other, on the other hand, what if the adjuster says, I'll give you $1,500 today to walk away? Yeah, well, for a lot of people they have expenses and and financial needs that they could meet immediately with that $1,500 that is going to encourage them to take it right away. The difference is big enough. And that the the example I give is actually my experience um, that it's, you know, one or 2% of what a person would naturally be entitled to. Then a person can say, you know what? It's worth going through all of this process for that big a difference. And, and, and the new meat chart and the withdrawing of offers and all of that, the result of that will be that ICBC will not be making offers 
which are acceptable to plaintiffs. So more will go to trial. How's that going to affect the people who are waiting for their money from ICBC and who are living with injuries and living with the consequences of the accidents? Oh, they'll be harmed. That's the purpose. You know, ICBC uh, has demonstrated for decades that they don't care about the harm they do to people. And that's, you know, the whole issue about not paying your own Part 7 benefits because they're trying to blackmail you into a a terrible um, injury or lawsuit settlement. Uh, We say tort. Um, uh, That is the definition of bad faith. Um, And they don't care. Um, You know, when, when a person is desperate... Um, for groceries even, they don't have enough money because they're like most people living paycheck to paycheck. And ICBC refuses to pay even the $300 a week for for TTDs, refuses to pay for any medical treatment, any medical prescription at all. Um, And, you know, these people are going to the food bank or they've lost their home and now they're couch surfing. Um, I have not once seen an ICBC adjuster um, show empathy for that. They just don't care. So aside from taking all these cases to trial and showing that ICBC is, you know, acting in a, an improper way and exposing themselves to punitive damages, what strategies do you have to deal with this? Uh, well, uh, first of all, um, historically what I would do and many lawyers would do is the, the person, the injured person would come see us know, whenever it was after the crash, whether it was the next week or almost two years later, um, we would wait a while to file the lawsuit. We would want to do quite a bit of investigation. We would want to, as we say, work up the file, collect medical records and get expert reports, maybe interview witnesses. Um, And it would be a long time before the action got filed and therefore a long time before ICBC had to appoint a lawyer and start ramping up their expenses. Uh, that's gone by the boards for me. I will mm-hmm. file a lawsuit the day after a client hires me, and I will force them to appoint counsel, and I will be in court as many times as I can, forcing them to do their jobs. So ultimately, what's going to happen here is that the sort of overburdened insurance system is just going to lead to an overburdening of the courts because the strategy to, developed by the corporation to deal with things is not going to be effective. It's not an overburdened insurance uh, industry or system. ICBC actually makes ample money to pay all the claims as presented. Um, trial lawyers actually gave the attorney general before the first uh, changes that he made to the policies at ICBC Um, uh, a sort of briefing book on what changes he would make that would save the corporation more money than they say they're losing. Um, And he rejected all of those um, in favor of taking away people's rights. What it will overburden is the court system itself. Um, Right now, I mean, I, I know you've had the experience of arriving bright and shiny and with your tabs ironed ready for trial and there's no judge because, mm-hmm. okay, well, criminal gets priority. Criminal, then family with children at issue, then personal injury, you know, then suing the neighbor over a fence that's encroaching three inches over my property, that sort of thing. But we're kind of down the list. 
Um, we don't have enough judges as it is now. The delay is going to get longer and longer. Um, people's um, rights, as I say, are being taken away. That That is a dangerous thing. Um, what what um, I teach law sometimes in high school, and, and one of the things I tell the kids is that um, the law is not a system of justice. The law is a system of social control. Um, and... You know, if you have a confident expectation that if a wrong is done to you, you can seek recompense somewhere, you can seek uh, a remedy somewhere, that means that you're prepared to put up with whatever the system is. You know, we think we have a system of laws, so we don't worry about, you know, pirates and brigands coming to our houses every night, so we don't sit up all night with our guns and have bars across our doors and stuff. We think we have a pretty decent society. But when that gets taken away, if if someone hits me and I can't work, and I see BC's answer is suck it up, um, there are going to be a lot of desperate people, and and I very much fear that something awful is going to happen. Whether it's you know a person who's been jerked around by ICBC and not paid their benefits, loses their home, loses their marriage, you know, you can't pay your bills. You're fighting about money, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of bad things are going to happen. I think people are going to kill themselves. I think people are going to commit acts of violence. Now, a lot of people, I, I think, would 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 say that you are um, perhaps being irrational or hyperbolizing there, but I I don't, and I see. The impacts of people who are often a lot of my clients are waiting for some type of settlement in a civil context um, or fighting with an insurance company and then they end up in a situation that brings them to me for a criminal problem um, because of because of this so I mean I, I, I just want to interject there to say that you're not off base in saying that at all well and and even uh, closer to home Kyla think about the people uh, and I and I don't know how many uh, of these clients you have, but think about the people who are the victims of criminal violence. Mm -hmm. And and the victim goes to trial to be vindicated. And, and at least in Canada, I think most people are okay with the idea that that bad guy is going to be tried. And, of, of course, the victim wants him to be convicted. But when he's convicted, the system will deal with the punishment. What if the Attorney General of BC changed the law that said um, um, uh, sexual molestation short of actual um, rape, if, I'm, I don't know what the right word is anymore, but actual penetration. Uh, genital penetration. Actual, okay, so everything short of penetration is no longer a, a crime, it's just, you know, bad manners. And, you know, somebody molested my daughter somebody molested some person, woman, child, whatever, and, and they went to the police and the police said, yeah, that's just bad manners, uh, suck it up. What do you think would happen in society? People would take it into their own hands, mm -hmm. right? Um, if, if the attorney general passed a law that said theft under $5,000 is no longer a crime and we won't pursue it, and, and somebody shoplifts at my corner store and they only take $100, but they're doing it three times a week. I, I don't think people will stand for that. They'll take the law, as it were. They'll take the 
decision-making, the consequences into their own hands. And that's where we see the breakdown of society. Right. You know, and, and that's why I say law is a system of social control, because we walk around thinking, I mean, not consciously, but, you know, there are rules and we all follow them. And I can expect the guy at the red light, he's going to stop so I can drive through on the red. And, you know, I, I have a contract. I'm going to get paid what I agreed to. I'm on salary. And I, at the end of the month, I'm going to get my paycheck and it's going to be correct. Uh, all of those indicia of social normality, this attorney general is throwing out the window by saying, we're not going to recognize the law that we've had um, back to, if not the Norman Conquest, not much later, where if a person harms you, they have to compensate you for the injury, not for something else, but for the injury they, occur, they, they caused. The attorney general's turned that on its head. And he said, no, we'll only compensate you according to how much we can afford. And what we can afford is based upon how much profit we want to steal from the insurance company. Well, that's not right. That's not the law. That's not what an attorney general should be doing. Yet he is. Okay. Well, that, that is a perfect note to end on, I think. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the Driving Law Podcast. How can people reach you if they want to talk to you about this? Or if they have a personal injury claim? <laughs> uh, well, they could call my office at 604-635-1330. Okay. Uh, or they can go to my website, which is tlag.ca. Perfect. And uh, again, for the listeners, that's Thomas Harding at Trial Lawyers Advocacy Group. Uh, he is a very well-known and very experienced uh, litigator in the area of personal injury and family law. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the Driving Law Podcast. Thank you again to Thomas Harding of Trial Lawyers Advocacy Group for joining us on the podcast. If you have any questions about anything that you heard here today, or you want to reach out about any type of driving law issue in general, feel free to give me a call at Acumen Law Corporation. Uh, the number is 604-685-8889 or online vancouvercriminallaw.com. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.